I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little sex in it. With a little sex in it. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's been an exciting time for the podcast. I've traveled the world, or more specifically, traveled to New York and Los Angeles to bring you the season you're about to hear. We begin at the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills, California, in conversation with Peter Labuza as we discuss the history of early Hollywood, wherein Ernst Lubitsch is about to begin the second phase of his career. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. We are back with Peter Labuza. We are here now to open season three. Welcome back, everyone. We are in America. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here on uh, what I believe is a July 4th episode. I hadn't thought of that. It makes perfect sense. We're going to America. Uh, Also my birthday. (laughs) So hooray. We are leaving uh, behind the world of UFA and IFA, and we are entering the world of Warner Brothers, Paramount, MGM, and United Artists. And am I forgetting any of the major players? That Lubitsch is associated with? No, but, uh, well, eventually 20th Century Fox, but that's late in the career. We are here to talk about essentially the history of pre-code Hollywood. And if me even saying the word pre-code leaves you completely bewildered, have no fear, we will explain what pre-code even means. First thing I think we should talk about is what world is Lubitsch entering at this point? I mean, at this point, Hollywood as an institution, as a collective of studios interacting in one way or the other has been going for a few decades. Uh, he actually is actually entering at a something of an inflection point in the industry. Truly. Yeah. I would say that, you know, 1922, 23, when he's coming in is really the moment when Hollywood truly turns into what we would think of in Hollywood, right? If you even go back a decade before to 1913, 14, 15, where, you know, there's certain directors who are really getting established, Lois Weber, D.W. Griffith, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, and some of the studios are really starting to make that major journey from New York to Los Angeles, most famously Universal, right? Gets set up in uh, 1914, 15 in the big Universal City. And that period from like 15 to 20 is perhaps the defining period in which the structures that shape Hollywood really get built in. First of all, it's during this period where the studios really start to consolidate, right? There was a lot of Um, What we would call independent production happening in 14, 15, 16, 17, smaller groups just putting together a movie, giving it to another studio that's acting as a distributor. They're giving it to other exhibitors trying to sell it around. And it still has a bit of a Wild West feeling, right, that the the industry is just full of these renegades who are all trying to do their own thing. Um, That really changes in 17, 18, 19, essentially during World War I, in which the European film industry is being interrupted. And that's obviously a crucial element of this, right? Is that those studios are low in production because they're so involved, while the American studios are just gunning through production. And partially, there's a few things that are happening. One, this is a period where studios really start to consolidate in what we know as the sort of major Um, What will eventually become the major antitrust lawsuit of 1948, USV Paramount, 
Adolf Zucker, who's running Paramount during the influenza pandemic, really starts to look at this landscape and they're producing these high quality films and they have this distribution outlet. But the pandemic, the influenza pandemic is essentially shutting down cities and shutting down theaters. And right, because it's not like a wide release system that we have today where you release a film in 3000 theaters. Really, you're taking it from maybe you make 20, 30, 40 prints at most. And you're kind of taking it from first run cities to second to third. And right, he's chasing this pandemic uh, in terms of where they're going to release these films. And he's looking at this as like, this is really kind of really frustrating for me because I can't control this pandemic and I can't control what these theaters are going to do. But what if I owned all these theaters, right? And this is the moment that that starts to happen because he looks, if I own the theaters, right, I can kind of control where films get directed to. And so during the influenza pandemic, right, a lot of theaters are hurting, right? No one's making too much money. So there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, buy low and then, you know, really kind of consolidate that. And so, you know, Paramount does this, MGM does this, uh, Warner Brothers does this. You know, there's still major companies that are theater first. So what's at the time, 20th century theaters, eventually many years later will become part of the Fox Film Corporation. But that it's a really crucial moment that starts to kind of get the what we can think of as the factory element of Hollywood going. You know, so many scholars from David Bordwell, Janet Steiger, Kristen Thompson have all kind of pushed back against that factory, you know, model Ford uh, description of Hollywood. But there's to a certain extent, it's really true from the top down structure, right, that we should organize these studios in a way that makes sense. I think one of the key elements is double bookkeeping, right? Sort of accounting phrase where you're just able to kind of keep track of what's actually happening in terms of all the pluses and minuses financially within a studio and like have an idea of a slate and everything. So the studio system is really finally a system, right? That's built around a fact that a studio is going to make a certain number of films and they have these distribution outlets and then they also own these theaters. The other crucial element that really kind of financializes the studios throughout this period is during World War One is when the U.S. government really starts to look at the role of Hollywood as an international project for them. Um, there's a phrase that uh, gets used in sort of the diplomacy channels that the trade follows the film. And the idea was that if you're able to get Hollywood film into these markets, not so much Europe right at the moment, because, you know, a lot of theaters are closed, but Latin America, Asia, India, that um, you have these films that are really starting to show off American goods, American brands, right? Not necessarily product placement in the way that we think of it today, but a sense of American on ingenuity and culture. And audiences are going to see that and say, I want that. I would like to own objects like that. Right. And so it kind of is used as a way to sell and develop diplomatic relationships with um, other American companies who are so interested in what might be possible. And right. This is going to be something that's contentious within Hollywood, um, you know, even till today. I, just to go on a slight tangent, I remember this amazing memo I found from the MPAA in 1930, where the ice companies wrote to Hollywood because there was a film from 1930, I forget what it was, that showed off an electric fridge. And they were worried that people are going to see the electric fridge and stop using the old school ice chest, right? And this kind of shows that power that everyone 
assumed Hollywood films had. That's also important because once the diplomatic channels help establish Hollywood in all these international markets, everything they're making domestically in theaters is just profit, right? It is just a six wildly successful enterprise by 1920. And this is the moment also then where the giant Wall Street banks start to really provide credit to the studio system. So Goldman Sachs uh, being obviously one of the largest one, uh, Kuhn and Loeb is another one, right? And so again, this is that moment in 21, 22, 23 is you have this factory system that's just a printing money scenario and everyone knows how the system works. And as, you know, Boardwell, Thompson, and Steiger write in their classic book, The Classical Hollywood Studio System, right? There's a sense that everyone knows how to make a film, what a film should look like, how a production should run. And so there's all these standard setting that's also becoming crucial to that sense. So that's really the world that Lubitsch is entering is, you know, it's no longer a young enterprise as much as a well-oiled machine that, you know, has a sense of how everything gets run. When Lubitsch enters into this, he's brought over, he, he entertains a few offers from other studios, but it's uh, Mary Pickford at United Artists who ends up finally luring him over to make a film that never gets made. And then <laughs> uh, as the backup project, they go with Rosita. So he fell in with United Artists. Um, United Artists, though, was a quite a unique player in Hollywood for a few reasons. First thing is it was, I believe, the first Hollywood studio started with the explicit intent of being artist-driven. Yes, absolutely. Right. So it's founded in 1919. And United Artists is just, boy, it's such a fascinating. And it started in 1919 by Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, and Douglas Fairbanks. Fairbanks and Pickford famously uh, become married. And the sense is that the stars at this period and the director, as obviously with Griffith, are feeling a pull from this machine that I was talking about, the well-oiled machines of the studios. And there's a sense that what they want to do is they have these projects. They knew how to make films before the studios went to them. So as long as they can get the bank funding they can, you know, figure out how to do these productions. The one thing that UA actually really does that's very smart is they follow in the same structure as the other studios in buying theaters, right? And UA has is actually not entirely robust, but strong theater hold in at least most of the major cities as well as abroad. So they have a distribution network for their films. But the one big key element, right, is if you were any sort of writer, director, uh, not really writers, but director, producer, or major star who wanted to work with the United Artists, right, is you had to go to a bank and get funding. Um, Janet Wasco, uh, her famed book that's out of print, uh, Movies and Money from 1982, which is just this phenomenal book, really kind of goes through the stuff with uh, Bank of America, when Bank of America used to have public records, which were super great and useful. And just being able to look at what you had to do to secure a loan with Bank of America and BOA was really crucial during this period to United Arts because um, I'm going to forget the name of the owner of the bank, but it was an Italian man. And obviously as an Italian sort of who had been exiled out of Italy in many ways, right? I think he had this affinity for Hollywood and particularly these immigrants who had this sort of sense of, right, that we're, you know, fighting against this larger American system. And so they would be the ones who would often approve the loans for UA films through this period. And UA 
kind of goes up and down through the 20s and 30s. They get funding from some of the large Wall Street banks and then they're, you know, losing money. And, you know, I think it's what happens is in each kind of period, there's someone who comes along a big name producer who really wants to get involved. So, you know, obviously the names like Sam Goldwyn gets involved at some point. David O'Selznick gets involved. Cagney has a small period where he's involved with United Artists. It's like almost every major player who's sort of in between their studio contracts tries to do something with UA or tries to figure out something with UA. And, you know, UA is, you know, it's tough because, right, if you're the producer, you still got to find studio space to rent. You still got to, you know, create your own crews and everything. And it just doesn't have that spirit. And I think the thing is, and I don't know if you would agree, Devin, you know, if you watch a UA film from the 20s or 30s, it's not like, this holy sense of an independent film in the way that I think we think of independent film today being quite different from Hollywood products, but you still get films that feel a little more risky. I think the one I would show students is just clips from the Dudley Murphy film, The Emperor Jones from 1930, starring Paul Robeson, obviously an African-American, which to be in a starring role in a large A prestige project, as opposed to some of the race films of the eras produced, you know, totally outside of Hollywood, extremely daring, extremely rare. The film itself, if we talk about aesthetics, right, is very much a classical Hollywood film. You wouldn't necessarily say it's really breaking contours in the way that I think indie films today do. But UA obviously just plays a huge role in just like this sort of cultural legacy of something to aspire to for various artists in Hollywood as like the sense that you could control the system. And I think UA was much, much closer to the studios than we may necessarily recognize, right? UA did not take risks on smaller name people. It took risks on the top talent who didn't want to work with the studios. Yeah, they were still pulled by the same market forces. <laughs> it's just that, I mean, the people running it were had a more direct connection to the arts, but they went under just like anyone else eventually. <laughs> Ironically, for a, a company that, it, you know, its, it's whole brand was art, artistic freedom, right? Pickford brings in Lubitsch and immediately mm-hmm. they buy heads. Mm-hmm. And Pickford uh, exerts a great degree of control over the production. Lubitsch's experience with United Artists was not actually a, a hugely positive one. He found himself quite stimmied, actually. And he ended up accepting an offer from uh, Warner Brothers. What was Warner Brothers like? I mean, it's been characterized in virtually everything I've read about at this period as a fairly rough environment. There's an image of Warner Brothers that really develops that I think people know from the 1930s, right? I think that's the real period that people talk about, right? You know, the down and dirty Warner Brothers period. Mm -hmm. I think there's a period in which whether it's their top directors like William Wellman or Michael Curtiz, as well as right stars like Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, um, you know, the gangster films, the sort of genre element. And the 20s, you know, I've seen so many Warner Brothers films from that era and it's, you know, you never get the sense of that identity of the studio. I think in the way that I would say MGM has an identity yes. in the twenties. Thir- Paramount's developing one at the time. At the very least, Lubitsch has a very definitive style at Paramount when yes. he's there, and especially in the thirties, you have his you know kind of the the attempt to mass produce Lubitsch films. His his style kind of becomes intrinsically tied with Paramount. Exactly. And so for the twenties and Warner Brothers, right? I mean, it's obviously being run by the four brothers: Jack, Harry, and Sam. Sam and a classic fourth one who Albert. Albert, Albert, the the unknown brother at the time. But this is, of course, pre 
you know, the key moment for Warner Brothers as a identity as a studio comes when um, Daryl Zanuck really takes over as head of production and becomes sort of that right arm and of um, the colonel, uh, Jack Warner. You know, so I get the sense from my reading and other films that I've seen from that period is that Warner Brothers is just sort of aimless studio that is, you know, doing well. They own theaters. They have some key stars, but they're not really defining themselves in terms of the genre. You know, there's some real, as I think you're mentioning, excuse my language, some hard asses there. Michael Curtiz is pretty difficult to work with in this period. And of course, is it his Noah's Ark adaptation where people die during the production? Yes. <laughs> That little thing that we don't really talk about when we talk about Casablanca. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The studio is just kind of um, not losing money because they are going to be the ones who kind of make that big push for sound by working with RCA and getting funding from Goldman Sachs in like 25, 26, right before the crash. So they're able to sort of, you know, hold that identity helps them push into that next era. But, you know, I get the sense that Lubitsch has actually flexible amount of freedom in terms of production, right? I, I think there's just no sense of someone really commanding a style imposed upon the films as the way the moguls will do a little later in this period in the late 20s and early 30s, where they really kind of create that sense of the identity, right? I think if you read like, you know, Tom Chotz's Genius of the System, you don't see like the way that Jack Warner gets involved writing every memo every night to every film that's in production. He's not doing at this period uh, yet so far. I have often heard the environment of the Warner Brothers of this period as being characterized by a, a set of sibling rivalries. Yes. Between, I believe it was Jack and Sam who ran it from Hollywood and Harry who was in New York. And that caused friction and they disagreed over the hiring of Lubitsch. I know that whenever Darrow Zanuck did get involved, he didn't much care for Lubitsch. No, and I think you can see it right. And I mean, we spoke about this previously on uh, the first episode, on, right? Lubitsch is so defined by rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. That sense that rhythm is a thing. And Zanuck's films are boom, 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 right? Yes, they, are, yeah. they are faster, rough and tumble. You just think of the classic pre-codes, whether you're thinking of, you know, Scarface, the Howard Hawks film, or Night Nurse, um, directed by William Wellman, or just choose any run-of-the-mill particular pre-code film from the 1932, and you see that speed, right? It's That is the Zanuck style, right? Is that we got to get through the scene and get to the next one. Mm -hmm. Lubitsch's films, particularly when we get to the sound period, but right, you can see this in the silent period, are waltzes, right? They're about staccatos and rhythms. At this point, which is so ironic because they must have watched his Berlin work and then yes. go, this is the guy we got? Yes, like, absolutely. Like, we want this epic, you know, we want the, we want Madame Dubarry. And then, although Madame Dubarry is not a fast movie, but like, he was either making fast comedies or slow dramas. And instead they got slow comedies. <laughs> <laughs> they got the worst of both worlds. But of course, that's what defines, you know, a film like The Marriage Circle. Yeah. Or oh, what's the Jazz Age film that he does? Oh. Is it So This Is Paris? Is the one so This Is of? Paris yeah. is the one I'm thinking of. It has yes. that great montage. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right about the sibling rivalries being very important. There's just not a sense. And, you know, somehow Jack Warner will eventually become sort of the head honcho. And then later in the 50s, of course, he'll kind of steal the studio out from under his brothers uh, when they were all looking to get out. And he makes a secret deal with banker Serge Sergamenko to keep it, essentially. But that's for a totally different podcast going into the late 50s. 
we're kind of doing a nice little uh, preview of what to expect this season in our So This Is Paris episode. We discuss in depth the chain of events that got Lubitsch fired from Warner Brothers. They are very entertaining, I promise. But where does he end up next? Paramount. How was life at Paramount in the mid-20s? Paramount, particularly, well, later, particularly in the 30s, will get classified as a director-friendly studio, right? And it's the place where Janet Steiger writes really, really well about this, where it seems that the moguls who are running it kind of have that little bit of the foot on the brakes in terms of like, these people know how to run a production. You know, the director producers can work together and they will get that sense. Now that really comes into play when Lubitsch is a sort of head of production. He is kind of taking on that mogul route for that Paramount in the 20s, they have a decent number of stars on cue and everything that they can kind of pull from. They have, I believe, the most amount of theater ownership. Maybe MGM is ahead of them. And so there's this sense from, uh, you know, I mentioned Adolf Zucker running the studio and kind of being at the head that as long as you're making the stars look pretty, the films can kind of follow from there. And so from when I think about the films I've seen from the 20s from Paramount, dramas, comedies, maybe not necessarily a pure brand identity in the way that Warner Brothers in the 30s would do, or even MGM with having, you know, the highest quality productions, but everything being sort of like of a piece and put together and always, I think, built around the stars that they wanted to highlight. They'll be a little long to sound as most of the studios are after Warner Brothers kind of gets ahead in 27, 28, but they eventually, you know, figure it out. Like everyone figures it out. And of course they will particularly figure it out with Lubitsch turning to the musicals. And I think that's one of the key genres that they really help to push as one of their defining traits. Reading about Lubitsch's career is, is an interesting crash course and in how directors got on contract to studios got passed around, you know, with, with his Paramount contract. You know, Lubitsch was given the opportunity to go on loan uh, when his contract eventually got revised uh, once a year. So he did, you know, works with MGM and he worked with 20th Century Fox. He made independent films. Uh, let's talk about the big one, MGM, the home of the big lavish productions, or so their reputation says. It's interesting because I've heard that used as a kind of a slight against a couple of Lubitsch films I hold very dear, which are The Student Prince and The Merry Widow, which are both, you can see the, um, they're not only Lubitsch films, they're obviously Lubitsch films, but they are also obviously MGM films. Mm -hmm. Their budgets are big. They have lavish production design. It's maximalist. They're fast and showy. So what was MGM like? To start with, there's this famous moment during 1932 when Louis B. Mayer, who's the de facto head of the studio, cut everyone's salaries in half. And the quote, I forget from who it is, is that created more communists than Karl Marx, which a little true to an extent in terms of actually really forming the Hollywood unions that would come around in the mid um, 30s and really kind of actually start to establish power. Yeah. So Metro, Goldwyn, Mayer uh, starts with Metro Pictures, obviously, but then, you know, involves both Sam Goldwyn, uh, who becomes an independent producer in the 30s and 40s, and Louis B. Mayer, who really kind of becomes kind of the figure of classical Hollywood. When I think of a mogul, I think of Louis B. Mayer. For what it's worth, I think the, the film Mank, when it shows the scenes with Louis B. Mayer, has a kind of not a bad sense of like, you know, what that he was like in his atmosphere. And I think maybe it's the only time Louis B. Mayer has actually been portrayed on film that I can certainly recall. Right. It is a sense their thing, their tagline for the studio 
in the 20s is more stars than there are in heaven, right? They are about lavish looking productions, right? They know that the way to attract audiences is make them big, make them beautiful. And plot is not is secondary, I think, in a way. Maybe if you want to say that's sort of a defining feature, it's like I feel like the Paramount films are often a little more story driven, which might be coming out of their artist supported culture, where I think the MGM films can feel less story defined. And I think, you know, the big epics, they just do so many epics and they're always pushing, I think, in terms of spectacle and uh, special effects. There was um, a film that played at San Francisco Silent Film Festival last summer um, was this film called The Fire Brigade. You know, it's been restored by the Library of Congress. It's the type of film, I'll say, like it's a giant film about Irish immigrant family and their work uh, being firefighters. So right the end of the film, amazing special effects, big fire sequences. But also, and this is how you know, three types of color systems all made in the film. There's a two-strip technicolor sequence. There's classic toning throughout the film. And then there was a special process. It basically is creates two colors in the same image, essentially, but different from technicolor. And right, I think that's really what defines MGM, right, is we're going to give you something bigger than you've seen before. So when you get to a film like The Merry Widow, it's just like overly lavish compared to even like the operettas that Lubitsch was doing with Paramount, like The Smiling Lieutenant, right? It's just so much bigger. And you can see why audiences wanted to go see these films. First of all, because they had the best stars or the most popular stars of the era, the people that, you know, the audiences cared about the most, and that they were these things that felt like you got the bang for the buck, right? In the way that, you know, spectacle films today obviously still attract the most audiences, right? Is people don't necessarily want to care for the story. They want to see something that awes them. And I think Mayer really had that sense throughout his entire career. MGM would be this sort of, you know, A-list thing. And, And until really you know, he's the one who holds on too long in the 40s and 50s, refusing to adapt to what the other studios were doing because he so believed in the project he began in the 20s and 30s that that was the way to keep audiences, even when things were moving a different direction. Oh, boy. OK, so that leaves us with one last kind of plot relevant studio, and that's 20th Century, the studio that produced, among other things, Heaven Can Wait. Right. So, I mean, it really starts as Fox Film Corporation, right? Going back into the mid-20s. I would describe it as like a little brother of Warner Brothers. Scrappy, trying to figure out their identity. A good example is Fox brings over Sonia Heen, who's an ice skater, right, to do a series of various romantic comedies that then can show off her ice skating. And I think the thing that defines William Fox, right, is a sense that he's kind of a trend chaser, right? I think for you and I, the most key element is that period in Fox in 1927 in which he brings over F.W. Murnau, another German director who had been known for, you know, these classics of German expressionism. And Every director in Fox at that time, which includes John Ford, Howard Hawks, has to make a more now style film, right? So you look at a film like Four Sons, which is John Ford, and it's uh, this very, very specifically more now styled German expressionist film, uh, as close as German expressionism comes to Hollywood. I think there's a, a there's a Howard Hawks film. I think it's his second film, and I don't remember the title at this time. Um, but it's like he was just like, yeah, I had to do these sort of long tracking shots in the film because the, we were all supposed to do more now stuff. Yeah, there's that. Bizarre- 
bizarre period where Murnau is the host style. Yeah, I, I know. It's very wild at that time. And of course, they're never financially soluble in the way that the others because they don't own theaters. So finally, in 1935, the studio goes bankrupt. And in that, you know, bankruptcy, as I think we all learn in terms of bankruptcy in different companies all the time now that seem to not die somehow, they keep living on in zombies, right? 20th Century Theaters buys the Fox Film Corporation. They combine the names, 20th Century, 20th Century Fox. Fox yeah. Of course, now no longer exists in any form because it's part of the Disney company. Um, but <laughs> yes, the mouse house. Right. And that helps kind of just stabilize profits in a way that where William Fox could never get a handle on what exactly could hit because he just didn't have that theater control that, you know, the other major studios at the time had so much control over. It kind of helps the studio really start to shape itself as an identity. And, you know, I think when you think of like even Fox films in the late 30s and 40s, there's not like a particular genre that stands out. They certainly have a lot of stars. I feel like the war films are very good uh, in terms of things. And eventually, of course, you know, Daryl Zanuck, after he leaves Warner Brothers, comes over to 20th Century Fox. Uh, and, you know, like if you read the great... Um, book of uh, memos between or just the memos between Zanuck and Ford, right? That relationship just gets uh, John Ford gets very special and very unique and contentious, obviously, throughout um, that period. And I think Zanuck really kind of tries to do for Fox what he did for Warner Brothers earlier in his period, not so much in defining things in terms of a fast grittiness, but a certain sense of a little bit of class, but I think really pointed dramas. And he is like the ultimate memo writer, right? He's the ultimate one watching every single daily, having senses of ideas and everything, right? There's this um, great memo I saw at the John Ford archives in Indiana, right? Where um, John Ford sees the grand illusion and says like, this is the greatest film. I actually want to remake it in America. I think it'd be great. And Zanuck says, you, you can't do it. You'll never be as good as Renoir as director, um, which is wild to think of, right? But I think, you know, Zanuck had that sense in, in the way that studio moguls had that sense, right? It was always about how to combine financial ingenuity and inventiveness with the artistic whims of the directors that were, you know, key to the studios. Let's let's quickly introduce Universal. Um, what was going on at Universal this time? Yeah, Universal uh, is um, one that also goes through various periods of bankruptcy and just struggles, right? Universal goes back to Carl Lamel, uh, who really, right, it is the biggest studio in 1914-15. It's, I mean, really the only big space in Hollywood in that period, right? Universal City, which still exists in some form today. And it's probably the strongest through the 10s and 20s, right? They have different programs like the Bluebirds program, which is sort of about these women's social genres. A lot of female directors are working under that sort of um, subsidiary branding in that period in the 20s. They're doing big films, they're doing small, they have they own a lot of theaters. By the time of sound, it's Lamel Jr. who's running the studio. He's being creative. Is he running the studio in a good way? Eh, that's, you know, up to debate, right? So, right, he obviously embraces certain genres in different ways. I think, you know, The King of Jazz, which was released by Criterion in this new restoration a few years ago, right, is kind of the sense of ambition that Lamel Jr. has in terms of what he wants to do. And then, of course, what everyone remembers, right, is the genre that they really establish themselves. It's the horror films, right? Because they create the films with Bela Lugosi and 
Boris Karloff that really kind of established a series of films around Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman, all these that are enough to keep the studio going, even though it's always seemingly on the verge of bankruptcy. The other studio, just to mention, RKO, the biggest little, uh, the biggest little, little's big, depends on who you know. Little's big, I believe, is the name of um, Richard Jewell's sort of classic two monograph volume on that studio, right? RKO goes through different owners, different people, always kind of, you know, just chugging along. They own theaters, perhaps best known for, you know, giving uh, a big check to a certain Orson Welles to make a film. And he described the studio as, right, the biggest train set that a boy could ever dream of. And that makes for a very exciting time. But, you know, never really ever accomplishes what they set out to and is the only studio that truly goes bankrupt in 1958 and totally collapses and right has no cultural memory even away like MGM right which still exists in some form today but is obviously not really a studio in the same way RKO is just like disappears a lot of that has to deal with the mogul Howard Hughes who starts to get involved in the studio all the way back in about 1940 and then really in the late 40s and 50s is personally running the studio but with so poor sense of what should make a studio run that he never really gets anything going and they're doing so few projects. And so eventually it just goes bankrupt and he's obviously goes off into other directions, both in terms of financial acumen, but also in terms of his own personal life that um, if you've seen Scorsese's The Aviator, I think he kind of does a good sense of capturing. But those are, are, I think, all the studios of this period. The studios become financially profitable in the 20s, but there's all this sense of like, can this thing remain? And particularly, can this thing remain during the Great Depression, right? Um, that everything could fall apart. And, you know, you look at France, that's what happens, right? All these sort of smaller studios go away. The studios all the way in the mid 20s, you know, decide that they need a trade organization that's going to be the thing that represents their interests and can work with governments, with what will eventually be labor unions with the public in general. And this is the formation of the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, but at the time was known as the MPPDA, so the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. The point of that group and one of the key things they do is they bring in the former U.S. General Postmaster, Will Hayes. It feels weird to bring in the postmaster, but if you think about cabinet positions in the United States right today, we think of, you know, the strong ones being Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense. Postmaster was up there as one of the key diplomatic positions. So Hayes gets immediately involved, right? If you read my advisor's book, Lara Isabel Serna, her first book, Making Sinolandia, she goes through all the fights that Will Hayes is having for the studios that are trying um, in Mexico, where they're trying to ban certain, I think particularly at the time, RKO films that use Mexican stereotypes. And Will Hayes is the person who, leaving the government, comes to the MPPDA and really, you know, helps bargain a deal so we can keep having films in there. And he kind of acts as this key respected figure who can kind of be the press piece in the same way, right, where like Major League Baseball after the Black Sox scandal gets a commissioner of baseball, someone who's, you know, secretly just basically a patsy for the studio heads, but can act like he is, you know, neutral and is just trying to do best for these studios. But really, it's to operate their interests in lobbying efforts in, in the government. And that element of forming that shape 
really starts to set this boundary of like a closed inner circle of Hollywood right around these major studios who start to own most of the theaters at this time and are producing the biggest films. And then you've got all these tiny companies all around the circle who are all like trying to do the same thing, but don't have access to that power and lobbying effort and capital. Most of the studios now we know as the Poverty Row studios that are making truly B-movies. And these companies, three films and they go bankrupt, right? Because they just, they don't have that power and capital. And right, most of them, what they're doing is they're making films that are being fed to the studios to be on an AB double feature at the time, right? So the studios are producing their B features, but it's like, uh, we don't have something. Okay, let's just go buy something from one of these other studios, which helps keep, you know, the Poverty Row studio alive for another two months before it also collapses because the profit margins are so thin over there. But yeah, so the MPPDA really just is doing all this structural work to keep the studio system together and create this sort of front organization that's working, right? And they're really setting the standards, right? The MPPDA gets involved when the transition to sound happens, right? Of like, all right, how are we going to set the standards so everyone kind of agrees on the same projects? And of course, when we, if we want to go there, right, to the censorship laws that really start to define, I guess, what you call postcode Hollywood in 1934, this kind of self-censorship apparatus, which would later become known as the Motion Picture Production Code, or also known as the Hayes Code. We might remember that name from two minutes ago when we introduced the figure of Will Hayes. So how did Hayes go from being involved in the MPBDA to being involved in the Motion Picture Production Code office? Censorship in Hollywood goes back to the first films that were coming out, even in like the 1890s. Every state has a major censorship board that gets formed in the, if not the O's, I don't know, in the 1900s, the 1910s. And of course, most importantly, is the Supreme Court case Mutual v. Ohio, Mutual, an early silent film company, which basically that Supreme Court said films are commerce. They are not speech, right? So they are not protected by the First Amendment, right? So when films are getting made throughout the 10s and 20s, right, all the studios are facing issues where they bring a film to one state and right they're like here's the cuts you have to do to show it so you got to make a version for you know nebraska you got to make a version for new york you got to make a version for florida all of them have depending on the film there's probably going to be very similar cuts but some of them you're going to be slightly different cuts and i think of course the other key element which you know that is not a very particularly good system but rising amounts of anti-semitism right there's a sense that this is a Jewish industry, right? Neil Gabler's famous book on this, An Empire of Their Own, really gets a sense of like the growing amount of anti-Semitism toward these Jews, quote unquote, who seem to be pushing their values, right? In the 20s, right, the films not just that Lubitsch made or, you know, think of films starring Colleen Moore, Clara Bow, and for what it's worth, what Damien Chazelle's Babylon, you know, cre- recreates this sort of sense of this world that it's just a debaucherous world and that, you know, Hollywood is pushing its morals on the rest of the United States. So Will Hayes being the head of the MPPDA, but also lobbying the government is reading the tea leaves of this period. What's going to happen is federal censorship, which would eliminate a lot of the things, but would take away the creativity of Hollywood. And of course, the studio heads are looking this to be like, these films sell way better than like our nice little, you know, Jesus dramas or whatever, you know, they're making. Some of those did very well, like the Ten Commandments in 1925, but not all of them, right? Like 
people want to go see the sexy fun movies of this period. And so there's this kind of big overarching question that's hanging over the studios at this period because they're seeing how all the other countries are getting these state censorship boards, right? Like the UK, Germany, France, any of, I think the United States is the only one still with a privatized censorship board. Hayes proposes this, the motion picture production code, right? Is that there's going to be the rules of do's and do nots that the studios are all going to abide by. Or it was the specifically the don'ts and be careful. Right? Don'ts and be careful. Yeah. Of course. Well, Want me to list them all? There's only 11. Go ahead, please. One, pointed profanity, either by title or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ, unless they be used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Hell, S-O-B, damn, God, and every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Uh, I should say this is the don't section. Two, any licentious or suggestive nudity, whether in fact or silhouette. Three, the illegal traffic in drugs. Four, any inference of sex perversion. Five, white slavery. Six, miscegenation. Seven, sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Eight, scenes of actual childbirth. Nine, children's sex organs. Ten, ridicule of the clergy. Eleven, willful offense to any nation, race, or creed, which I, I feel like that contradicts six. Yes. So that one, I think, particularly comes out of the it's all quiet on the Western Front controversy that Ah. develops at the time where they have to make a specific, slightly different version for in the way that many countries um, always would require a different version. You know, go back to what I said about Hayes working with the Mexican government and the Mexican stereotypes that were appearing in RKO films. Right. There is a sense that, right, like we can't you can't sell it in these certain countries. So, like, just don't do it. Once this list was formulated, you know, this is 1930 ish. We still got four years to go in what we still call the pre-code era, even though this is a certain code. Right. What was going on? Well, I think the studios looked at their financial lines and they looked at the fact it was the middle of the Great Depression and they said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're going to make as many different types of movies as possible. And particularly, we're just at the period that we're figuring out sound. And now we can do new exciting genres like the gangster film, which requires the gunshot um, and salacious romantic comedies that require all these, you know, sexual innuendos and everything. And, you know, musicals where you want to be able to show a little leg, right? All these things that are, these are becoming the bread and butter of Hollywood starting in about 30, 31. And I think the studios just say, you know, we've created this thing and it got us some good press and everything, but you know, let's not abide by it. Right. And so they're still getting, you know, I remember reading through the files for the public enemy, the James Cagney um, gangster film, right. They're still being censored to hell and back by, excuse my language, but it's very proper for the, you know, talking about pre-code um, by every state government that wants to. And, you know, it's like this, this one gets the grapefruit scene and this one doesn't and other ones, right? Like, so famously um, Babyface, the film with Barbara Stanwyck directed by Alfred Green, I believe that's a Warner Brothers film, famously had a sequence early in the film where the sort of mentor to the Barbara Stanwyck character reads her Nietzsche and how she should will to power by using her body, which was then lost for, you know, decades until then, you know, a nitrate print was found of the original film, right? The studios just say no. And they just, because they think it's too important to hold on to profit and right. I mean, it produces this period of 
probably the most exciting American cinema has ever been for me personally, I would say, is that period in 32, 33 of these films that are daring, that are salacious, that, you know, like redheaded woman, which features nudity and gets away with it, right? For audiences in this period, right? You want to go see something fun and exciting. And I think that at least holds it to its extent as other conservative forces that always grow during periods of economic turmoil are starting to have a bigger say in American culture, whether we think of, you know, famously Father Coughlin, who does his radio broadcast and becomes very key to the growing white nationalism that would define most of the 1930s, but to other, you know, groups like Catholic groups, uh, Protestant groups, right, that are really taking hold in terms of membership because of the economic downturns and thus having more say in lobbying the government and kind of pushing that, you know, once again, quote unquote, these quote unquote Jews are trying to destroy America with their European values and their, you know, whatever their othering sentiments are. And they're trying to destroy America within, right? I mean, you can see the parallels today of like, you know, look at the attacks on Bud Light or Target or the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? By like promoting anything of social values, these groups come out and say, right, it is literally attacking the fundamentals of America, uh, no matter how skewed that is toward the truth. But that's what's really, you know, was happening at the time in 33, 34. And that led to the uh, Catholic Legion of Decency kind of essentially being mostly responsible for the installation of Joseph Breen, who by reputation, at least, is that he is almost like the first administrator of the Motion Picture Production Office that seemed to take a rigorous approach to this. And, and so you had in, I believe, July of 1934, the censorship became both more rigorous and essentially mandatory. Yes, mandatory. And I think what was key really at the screenplay level way more being yes, the thing, right, yeah. is that you couldn't start production on a film. And right, let's think about what the code then becomes, right, is that every Hollywood film was going to have a seal, right? We now know this sometimes at the end as the MPAA seal, You, yeah. if you go to the end of the credits. And that was the seal of approval for audiences to know that this film had been you know, it's okay for family entertainment in some way or possible, right? So that and certain theaters, right? And this key, right, with the studios owning the theaters, right? The theaters are only going to play films that have, you know, a seal on them being part of that element, right? So it does become this pack because those pressures are too great in the Catholic Legion of Decency, right? Really pushing. And Breen, of course, is this just truly, truly, like, mammoth figure in just every film you've seen from 34 to when he really kind of passes on in 56, I believe is his last year when he does the code, right? Has his or one of his minions hands on it, right? And we're sitting here in the Margaret Herrick Library, which is run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who has the, you know, the MPAA records and you can just any film, you can look it up and see like what they had at the screenplay level, what they had at, you know, first run, uh, reshoots, right? And you just see all the back and forth demanded by what becomes known more more colloquially as the Breen office, less than the motion picture production code. Starting um, with 1929's Love Parade, the Margaret Herrick Library, especially Matt Severson, their past and future guest, has furnished us with the surviving censorship records of about 
eight of these upcoming films. So whenever relevant, I will be posting those on the show notes. Phenomenal. Matt, Matt is fantastic. Right. And so Breen really forces the studio's hand. And I think the studios also force the hand, right? But ultimately, right, what they're all trying to do, and the reason they do this is because government censorship is a worse, you know, element to them than being able to run their own show. Famously, in 1940, all the studio heads are forced to testify in front of the United States Senate because there's a sense that they're making too many pro-war films at a time in which there was a strong isolationist bent. And a lot of that is driven, again, by anti-Semitism, by the sense that these Jewish moguls are trying to push this European war on American souls. But, right, it does at least sort of create the stabilization of Hollywood that I think the studio heads ultimately did want. And of course, right, the artists of the time quickly figure out how to make maybe not as salacious films as 32, 33, but films that are quite risque in its own ways. Uh, You know, particularly everyone thinks of Frank Capra and it happened one night and the walls of Jericho coming down. Lubitsch got on the action too with like to be or not to be, which again has a uh, adulterous affair that no one is punished for. Exactly. Right. Like so many of the great artists of the time find their way around. Now that doesn't mean like, oh, we should celebrate the code. Right. You know, it was also used for political censorship. Right. This is actually the, is a start at all um, studio actors and writers and directors have moral clauses in their contracts. Right. That you can get fired or essentially blacklisted for doing something something morally, you know, in the public's eye, and then will really be used in 1948-49 around the Hollywood blacklist, right? That if you have an association with communists, right, that is actually a use of the morals clause. And, you know, that's where Dalton Trumbo famously gets that removed and but still stands with the Hollywood 10. This status quo obviously lasted until the late 1950s when uh, world events and films were released that kind of chipped away at the code. I mean, Lubitsch is actually an interesting case study in this where he kind of conveniently stopped making movies for three years. Right at the time of the code's arrival, you have The Merry Widow, which is his last pre-code film. And even then it was just under the wire. It was actually stopped right out the gate by Will Hayes personally. Green gave it his approval and Will Hayes basically went, whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, he, he attended a screening and uh, demanded some cuts. And the version that was released was cut at the print state. It was actually already sent out to the various the distribution centers, the hubs, and cut there, which apparently cost tens of thousands of dollars. So that shows you kind of how much things turned on a dime where um, Lubitsch basically was able to produce that film kind of unmolested. And it was cut later. You know, then he, then he comes back three years with The Angel and everything has changed. I also liked your note about, you know, the, the question of was this some sort of golden age because of the code? And I really, but I want to double down on that by saying like uh, one phenomenon I've been seeing a little bit recently is a little bit of a nostalgia for the code in some circles. And I think that that is uh, quite misguided. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge question, obviously, of our day and age where I think, you know, the morality of media content seems to be of a topic of discourse in the sort of educational sort of push of the cinema and television just seems strangely misplaced um, for, you know, in terms of my own personal and political values. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a free speech absolutist, but I think there's a lot of sense that, right, like the more we limit speech, the more we limit the possibility of new ideas 
Um, both, you know, some very, very bad, but some very good. But if you kind of trust the public, the public will, you know, take things at will. You know, in terms of what the studios are producing in the 30s and 40s, right? You know, usually it's like there's not some films are quite moralizing, but I think a lot of them are just, you know, trying to tell good stories. And, you know, I think the real question comes when you get to the period of film noir that develops in the 40s that people commonly refer to because you have these films where you've got protagonists who are, you know, the villains of the films, or I guess, you know, they're going to do morally wrong things, but have to be, you know, um, put away by the end of the film. Uh, You know, I always think of this, right? Warner Brothers moves from making gangster films in the early 30s to making G-men films in the mid 30s, right? The films about the FBI or, you know, that center cops as the protagonist, right? Because that's the only way you can still do a gangster film. You just can't have them be the hero of the film. And of course, there are some that are made, right? Like um, Warner Brothers makes famously 20th Century with James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart, in which his character is a gangster, but he's the gangster with a little bit of a heart of gold or a little bit of a sensibility. He's still going to get his come up at the end and really the Humphrey Bogart character is the one that we recognize as morally wrong in some way or of course like uh, Angels and Dirty Faces right which is another one which sets up you know a dichotomy between quote unquote good and you know bad it's tough in some ways right we want to recognize the artists who did well and interesting work in this period but don't want to say that well it was good because they had that constraint right any I think you know we as I think people who work think about aesthetics and and material conditions, we're always interested in artists who rise above the material conditions of their period. We're very fascinated by this. That doesn't mean we approve of the uh, the material limitations that they had to face. I think that's a very good distinction. Um, speaking of limitations, this season is our last silent season. It's our last season of silent films. We're moving into the sound era. And we've discussed with Lucy Marzola how that impacted cinematography, but I, I'd be curious to know what both the advent of sound and actually the coming of the Depression, what chaos that must have caused in the studio system. It must have been such upheaval in a three or four year period. There's a reason nobody watches films from 1929, essentially, because they're so bad. No, they're not all bad, but... Can you guess what the highest rated film on Letterboxd is from 1929? I'm guessing it's a silent film. You're entirely correct. And it is my favorite film from 1929. It is Man with the Movie Camera. Okay. It's not particularly close. The thing, but I think you see the slowness comes in, right? Because I think one of the things you watch a film from 27, 28, whether you're talking about a Hollywood film like The Fire Brigade or Four Sons, there's a certain just the openness of the camera. All that goes away when you come to sound. There's a sense, right? Because the sound technology, right? It limits where people can move, where people can stand. You know, the classic singing in the rain scene that everyone knows where, you know, you have to speak into the microphone, you know, it's certainly true to an extent. And that sort of starts to limit at least the quality. This is why you see a lot of films that are like half sound and half silent because they want to do exciting different things, action sequences or whatever, that really kind of still show that the stuff that people loved about um, silent film and loved about, you know, the speed of films. Yeah, the, the very early talkies like uh, jazz singer and things, right, where you have the musical sequences. Yes. And then you have almost everything else is silent. Exactly. And so, you know, the films that really take off, particularly in 28, 29, are the musical films. So the Love Parade or I think of um, King Vidor's Hallelujah, which is an all black 
pastoral musical of this period, right? But those are very, um, even to an extent, The Love Parade is a slow film, right? And I think like the sequence where there are two butlers and at least what it does is it moves from uh, location to location, right? So it still gets that element in that it makes it feel a little less static. Often these films, even from 1930, the sound isn't well recorded and can be a struggle to sometimes even make out the dialogue. And that is even coming from nitrate prints. Yeah, and post-production sound mixing basically didn't exist. So It doesn't exist exist at all they had to record all the singers live with an orchestra on the yes. other sound stage and mix them live i'm sure a book i recommended to you but i will recommend to the listeners is um leah jacobs film rhythm after mm-hmm. sound which is just this phenomenal study of the creation of rhythm right um i've got i've got a paper that's sort of sitting unpublished on uh howard hawks doing the dawn patrol his first sound film you know you see him trying to recreate that speed that he had in some of his silent films, right? So that's a film famously with all men. He cuts an entire sequence that may have been shot with a woman in the film that was sort of a romantic element. And like the key romance in that film actually gets placed on two men. Um, And I think Jacobs writes about this film as well, right? But one of the things that Hawks did on that set, like kind of create all these background dialogue conversations and have them kind of rhythmically line up with the actual action, right? To just not have that space between words that so often defines these early silent films in what 31 32 31 really right is when they actually start to be able to figure out how to record and be able to move the camera at the same time and all those pieces of technology that start to speed the thing whole you know whole again and then Zanuck particularly at Warner Brothers says all right we've we can put a little more gas Let's hit the metal. And that's why those films are so fast and so much. And right. It's all those sound effects really that start to make those, whether we're thinking of Scarface and the public enemy. And you have the fast talking comedies, you know, the ones where it's just like, you know, it's cut, 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 cut. It's, it's everything is just to the bone. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that period is also, again, a period of consolidation in the industry, right? And because it is in 28 when the studios within the MPAA all say, this is the sound technology we're using. These are the standards you're going to use in production. These are those elements, right? And I think that's always key for, you know, thinking of alternative histories, where film could have gone at any moment or who could have been the dominant players. It is sort of capital dominating, you know, asserting itself because the patents that are being used and controlled that really assert like this is the way that sound is going to be. And possibly, probably actually slows down that process because it's set in 28, but everyone's doing this slow process and has to do the slow process because the MPAA has set all the standards and they're the ones who are kind of telling the theaters what to do, right? You kind of see like that failure to innovate happening partially because like there's one company, you know, there's one group that's controlling everything, but eventually, right, it works out and we have sound films and all the theaters eventually get sound systems. And then, of course, the depression hits. Yes. And I mean, in Lubitsch's films, you can really notice the effects of the depression, not on the budgets per se, although it did affect the budgets, but on the subject matter, right? Where suddenly Lubitsch has gone from portraying largely aristocrats and royalty to he still does those. But he also makes films like Design for Living, which is about people who start out essentially impoverished students who, you know, kind of make something of themselves gradually. Or you have Trouble in Paradise, which is about thieves posing as aristocrats. This also had obviously tremendously impacts on what films got made and how films got made. Yeah, I think there's a sense, right? And, you know, we're talking about the code and everything that 
the studios do, and particularly I think the writers at the studios recognize that they are kind of a voice of America. And I think, you know, a lot of them, right, they're not paid well at all back then. A lot, And a lot of them came from blue collar jobs, right? It was like, you're a newspaper boy or whatever, right? Like you're a trucker. I won't call the 30s Hollywood a populist cinema. I think that's sort of a misnomer. But I think there's a lot more focus on class as the major element of Hollywood films, particularly because that's what the Hollywood audiences were. They were mostly lower class films cost a nickel and you get to go into two and you could actually stay as long as you want. And that was kind of what was dominating culture at the time. And you don't really see that change actually until like the mid 40s, 50s with, I think, the changing in American demographics with suburbanization, the GI Bell sending people to college, right? That's where you lose that sort of class identification and also other more social pressing issues rise to the top, whether we're thinking about issues of gender, whether we're thinking about issues of race, which because of the production code are present in some Hollywood films of the 30s and 40s and can be actually quite interesting and, and frank in their discussion of ideas of gender and race in a way that I think audiences today would be actually surprised. I always like to surprise my students with things where they're like, I didn't think a movie could be that, you know, interesting or complicated in a way that maybe wouldn't be recognized progressive, but actually thinks about what the dynamics are. But I do think there's a sense that the depression does create this obligation in studios to show the values that define America and particularly through the worker being this key element. And of course, right at the same time, we should mention this is the formation of the Hollywood unions. The Screenwriters Guild is started in the 20s, but really gains its um, power in the 30s. The Directors Guild of America starts at this time. Obviously, what I work for, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, does actually get started in the 1890s in theater New York. And by this period is kind of being run a little bit by the mafia. There's a sense that for Hollywood workers that they are working class. So they want to represent working class values in the films and their fight for unionization, which will truly come to the head with the formation, you know, under the New Deal and the Wagner Act and the passage and the creation of the National Labor Relations Board, that they are in the same fight that everyone else, even if there's a sense that, right, the actors are overpaid and the top directors, I think there's, I forget which studio head says when they form the director's guild, what do they want a second swimming pool? There's this sort of class identity that gets formed that they are working class in a way that the executives like Jack Warner and Louis B. May are not. One of the last elements I want to say, right, we haven't actually focused too much on the aesthetics of Hollywood films. And I always push this against my students. It's like, oh, they all look the same. And there's a little bit of a sense, but I think there's so much cleverness you can find in a classical Hollywood film that gets surprising, right? I think, you know, people post a clip here and there all the time where it's just like where someone does move the camera through a space in a surprising way that can be as avant-garde as a, a Godard film. Uh, I'm just looking at a giant Alphaville poster behind Devin here. I think one of the things about the studio system is, right, it is not a factory. It is a sense of this creativity happening at every moment by necessity, right? Something goes wrong. I mean, again, this is not particularly a fan of the film, but Babylon captured this well, right? The sense that we got to get the camera before the sun sets, right? This sort of chaotic energy that often would happen on studio sets. And, you know, you just got to work and figure out a way around it. Hopefully it'll come together. The more you watch 
30s films and 20s films, I say, you start saying they all look the same and then you start to notice the differences, right? And you notice, and this is how a tourism really got born, right? Was people like Andrew Saris watching all these films in the 30s and being like, you know, this film doesn't look and operate the same way that all these others, right? And particularly when you've seen so much, so many young people watch Citizen Kane and don't really get what's exciting about it. And then you go watch a hundred films from the 1930s and then you watch Citizen Kane and it blows your mind, right? It's just like, wait a minute, look at what he's doing with the camera suddenly. You did not see that in 1935 or 36 or 37. And that's one of the things that makes Hollywood films so unique and special. And, you know, the more you dig in, the weirder the whole system becomes. It is still a factory. People feel like they're working in a factory. Ronnie Rajab's recent um, publication with UNC Press, Working in Hollywood, I think really gets that sense of that whether or not we recognize the factory, the feeling of a factory setting was really crucial to how the workers felt and why they felt the need to unionize. But there's so much creativity in all of these films. And that's why you and I are discussing a particular director who did some of the most creative ones of this period. I think when people trained on, which is basically all of us, trained on contemporary cinema, mm -hmm. encounter you know, a series of old films, especially before the widescreen revolution and color, you see the differences between what you're used to and what these all these films look like. And you see those commonalities within those films before you see the differences between those films. It's like drinking beer all your life and trying five wines, right? All the five wines are going to taste the same, unless the one's white in the restaurant. But if you have five red wines, you're not going to know the difference until you actually get to know the red wines. I mean, I bet if you could somehow time travel and take someone from 1940, show them 10 modern blockbusters from the past 10 years, they'd probably go, those all look the same. And sometimes they do kind of feel the same too. And yes, I mean, I, they're right. <laughs> but point being, once you kind of get over the major difference that you see between what you're used to and this other school of thought or this other movement, you slowly develop the ability to, for example, go, okay, here is Love Me Tonight, a film that was made off of a Lubitsch blueprint, but directed by Ruben Mamoulian versus Here is the Merry Widow, a film made from a Lubitsch blueprint directed by Ernst Lubitsch. The actual differences between those two directors might not seem obvious if you've never encountered anything else. They just seem like two musicals starring these two funny actors. One last story, right? I always think of when Otis Ferguson comes to Hollywood and is on the set of The Little Foxes, um, directed by William Wyler. And Wyler, of course, is particularly unique in this period because of his use of deep focus that will become an obsession. Yeah, with Greg Tolan shot that, didn't I believe, he? Yes, it's Greg Tolan's shot film. Part of what Ferguson wanted to do is he's like, I can see the differences in these films, but I need to understand the difference. And I want to go to the productions and see what's actually happening and which shots, how the shots are being set up. And I think that was really key, right? And it's the more you watch from the period, the more you read from this period, you really see this vital, unique ecosystem being formed that is always meant, right? The idea that we say it's just Hollywood film, right? Is something pushed by the MPPDA and event, and now the AMPTP, right? It is a sense that they want to create that as a brand, right? And they want us to see it all as the same because that helps them at the top. But you and I, we want to see the little people working underneath and how they're navigating the system. And that's what we find. Exactly. And I think that's a good way to 
close off kind of our main discussion. However, I have one thing I want to talk about. You, six months ago, posted a recommendation for a certain pre-code film that is one of the best recommendations I've ever had, and that is the film Jewel Robbery. Oh, yes. Um, that has quickly become one of my favorite pre-codes, um, entirely because I just offhandedly read your post about it. I want to talk about what makes this film incredibly weird <laughs> and unique. It is bonkers. It's a William Powell, K. Francis romantic comedy from 1932, um, directed by... William Dieterle. By William Dieterle. And it is phenomenal. It is one of the most transgressive movies I've ever seen. It's about how great it is to get the cops hooked on pot and to steal aristocrats' wives. Yes. I mean, I think I saw it, you know, Film Forum, which is a, a repertory theater in New York. It's famous for showing so many pre-code films all the time, a 1932 series at least once a year, and they'll program 20 films, and they'll all be fantastic. And I believe I originally saw it there. I mean, I've shown this to students, and students go bonkers for this film like it is a it's such a fun goes film. over like a wildfire it's incredible yes. i mean i think right it's it's a very simple film in some ways right it's very few sets film lasts 70 68 minutes it's incredibly short, short. feels low budget at times and one is right i think you see the charms of hollywood actors right you see william powell and k francis as their best but you also see all these uh character actors who play whether it's the cops or the other people in the store that's being robbed right you see them all at the top of performance and deederly someone who really did care about performance i think it has a speed the camera isn't as wild and tumble as say william wellman would do at this period but there's always there's a lot of movement and interesting and i know you've posted some you know clips on twitter here and there of just like where the camera moves suddenly and captures a shot in that way right and it feels so accidental but it feels so perfect in the same way and i feel like that's kind of a key element of hollywood right you, we talk about invisible style right you can have these great shots, but you're never supposed to notice them, but you process them subliminally. In the moment, I don't think most people would notice them, but there's so many little decisions in this movie make it feel so dangerous. Yes. It's, the film never feels like it's going to go where you think it's going to go, either formally or even in terms of the story where the characters end up. Or even just the, the point of view of the author is so strange in this movie because the film is about people kind of wrecking their lives with bad decisions or so any other movie would have you believe. Yes. And of course, the final moment is K. France winking at the camera, right? Yeah. It's truly like an epitome of pre-code, right? Of just like, oh, you wanted this to end bad, didn't you? Right? That's like the sort of temptation that Francis is offering yeah, to the you audience. Want a moral. Like, you you but you you actually wanted this, right? You wanted the escapism. And I here I am giving it to you. And of course, Francis's career would be destroyed like within the next three years, right? Because you would be covered by scandal. I believe Karina Longworth has covered this in an episode of You Must Remember This in her sad history, right? It's just, uh, it is this truly escapist film, right? And it's about a character escaping. Francis is this woman who is in an upper class life who sees the potential of being bad and the excitement that that offers. And, you know, the film just embraces that without any sense of wanting to hold back. It's fantastic. It's really, there's not what else to say. I just can't think of a film made from any era, pre-code or otherwise, even a contemporary film where the William Powell character steals from people and the film treats it as not a moral failing, but there's never any sense of even a hint towards problematization. How did this ever get past any censorship board, even a disempowered one? Yeah, and even right if you think of like some of the other classics and, you know, the ending of Trouble in Paradise. But they get away the, with everything. They do, but also it is a, Go back to your wife film, right? Ultimately, yeah. right? 
Um, this is truly the only film where there's no sense of going back, right? That there's no sense that you have to go back. All those other films I mentioned and so many others, they still have a moral at the end. They still have something. Even like, like I think the John Stahl trilogy from this period, Only Yesterday, Seed, and Backstreet, all are ultimately moral films. They are transgressive films, but they're ultimately lamenting a moral, essentially. This film is just pure. It's different. It doesn't, you're right. How did this ever play without someone just saying we're banning this film, period? It's not you're not showing this here. I'm gratuitously putting it at the end of this episode here because you got this far and you care enough. You need to watch this immediately before listening. I, I, I urge you not to listen to any more episodes of this podcast until you've done your homework and watched Jewel Robbery. Thank you so much for joining me on this, Peter. This has been, a, as usual, a pleasure. I was delighted to come back. Next week, Tim Brayton joins us to discuss Rosita. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency, recorded in the Carl Malden Room at the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills, California. Anya Shitak-Scott was our recording engineer. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 